you're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Hugo Award-winning science fiction author Alan Steele. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. I'm really very glad and happy to see that within my lifetime that the prospects of not just Mars, but in fact, interstellar space is being taken seriously. I've been at two conferences where we were talking about building the first starship within this century. One of my later books, Arkwright, is about such a project. I saw that Elon Musk is building Starship One. I wish him all the best, and I envy anybody who goes. I wish I were a younger person and in better health. Somebody asked me some time ago, would you go to Mars? And I said, I can't do it now. I've got a bum pancreas, and I'm 65 years old. I'm not exactly the prime prospect for doing this. If you asked me 40 years ago, would I go? I would have said, in a heartbeat. I would gladly leave behind almost everything. I don't think I'd be glad about leaving my wife and family behind. But I'd be glad to go live on another planet, perhaps for the rest of my life, just for the chance to explore a new world, to be one of the settlers in a new world. I think this is something that's being taken seriously, and I think, yes, it is very possible. And this is what I was pointing out in Coyote, and tried to point out, is that we've got to be careful about how we do this. We've got to be careful about particularly about the rationale of the people who are doing this. Coyote Project Starflight in that novel is the offshoot of an extreme right-wing government, and they're doing it for all the wrong reasons, for sheer imperial colonialism. They're going out there initially in this spirit of conquest, almost like the old Spanish in the New World. Tell you a little bit about what the novel is about for people. In the story, the starship, the Alabama, is hijacked by political dissidents, and take ship with its passengers, some of whom are going unwittingly, not knowing what actually happened here. And many of them are completely unprepared for this. Instead of the highly trained passengers, they got other political dissidents, some of whom had no idea where they were going until they were actually aboard the ship. And these are the people who have to be the ones to do this. But their motives, at least, are better than those of the motives, or are more sound than the motives of the people who planned the mission. And I think that's going to be sort of a tightrope walk. I want very much for humankind to explore space, and I think we can do this. But I don't want us to be going there as as conquerors. I want us to go in there in a very responsible sort of way. And in fact, to learn the lessons that we should have learned from the exploration of our own world, and to certainly not do some of the exploitive things that have been done. It bothers me that taken lately a shift to the right, to the far right. I don't know why that is, but I'd love to be able to sit down and talk with him about these things and try to understand why he has done such a right thing, but for what seems to be wrong reasons and why that's come around. Elon, if you're out there, give me a call. Whenever I walk into a library or walk into a bookstore, anything of this nature, I sometimes will stop and look around and just realize that I'm surrounded by the fruits of many people's intelligence. I believe that there's kind of a creative loop that goes on between the sciences and SF. Typically, you have some sort of scientific development or discovery is made. And a science fiction writer looks at this and says, wow, an interesting story could be done of this. So they write a story and it's published. And then somebody in the sciences comes along and reads that story and says, well, that's an interesting thought. I wonder if this could actually be made true. And so they begin to work on this. They begin to develop something that's inspired by that story. And then another science fiction writer comes along and looks at that development and says, yes, but what if? And then they write a story about that. 
Then another scientist comes along and looks at that story and so forth and so on. It's a loop. This is a great game that's been going on since Jules Verne's time. We, whether or not we actually get it right is almost beside the point. What is happening is that we're actually, I think, seeing what the possibilities are and seeing where the potential problems is what makes writing good stories that are entertaining at the same time is where when we're doing it right, when we're really working on all six cylinders, SF is, is at its best. History has a lot to do in science fiction, I believe. One of the things I've really noticed among my colleagues is how many of them are well-rooted in history and read history or historical fiction as a pastime. Many of these people are like me. You read history, but then you find out you're incorporating this into your tales of the future. When I would start out writing Coyote, I thought it was just going to be a realistic novel about space exploration, just a realistic look of how we were going to perhaps go to another star. When I was about halfway into the book, I began to realize that I was writing about something deeper, and that was about the early history of the United States, early settling. And that came out of the fact that shortly before I began writing this novel, we moved from St. Louis to Western Massachusetts to a small town here. This town has been here before the Revolutionary War. I can go up into the hills behind my house. And these old dirt roads that you find, and you go up there and you found foundations still of farms that used to be existing there almost 300 years ago. That's how old some of the buildings and some of the relics around this place are. And I absorbed this into the background somehow into the back part of my mind. I began reflecting on this almost subconsciously as I was writing this novel and what a new stellar colony would realistically look at. When you're living on the planet, and you're living off the land. You don't have any magic nanotech devices that can just manufacture anything you want for free when you're actually having to build your houses out of native material. And when I realized this, I was essentially rewriting America. I had to make a decision. Do you want to go with this? Or do you want to continue writing, you know, stop what you're doing here and go back and writing strictly about a science fiction novel? Or do you want to continue in this vein? of exploring American history. And I decided to go with that. So not just this novel, but the four novels that followed it were in that same exploration. I go through a, an analogy to the Revolutionary War. I go through an analogy to the settling of the West. I go through an analogy of the industrialization of early America. And to do this, I had to go and study a lot of American history and see what, what happened there and then kind of reflect on that in the course of this book. And I think it made for a very strong series doing that. There's a trend in the U.S. towards de-urbanization where they're taking places, particularly the inner belts in a lot of cities that were built anticipating very large city centers. Those are now being torn down and turned into parks. This is happening in a, a number of Midwestern cities. I'd love to see it happen in my hometown in Nashville, Tennessee, where they ripped up some very nice neighborhoods and put in inner belts. This little town where I live in, Waitley, Massachusetts, when I moved here, I think the population was a little less than 1,000. We've now got a little less than 3,000. It's still a small town, but we've had a lot of people who moved out here, built houses, who had been originally living in New York and Boston, and they still got jobs there. We have a little post office here in town 
which is once a gas station at Christmas time, you can't even get it back there. It's so crammed with boxes. And these are boxes of people actually making things in their homes and sending them out. A little town like this has suddenly gotten up the business of a much larger town because so many people moved in here. As far as AI goes, here's my personal forecast. And I've actually put this into a couple of stories. I think what we're going to be having is the emergence of a global AI, or maybe more than one, actually, it may be several, that are superior in many ways to humankind. They're more intelligent. They're faster, they're smarter, and they become the dominant species on this planet. I think this actually turns out to be a good thing. We don't have the dire Terminator features. We don't have the horrible future where they decide to turn on us and stalk us, and, and, and we have people on the run, robot armies out to destroy us, and so forth. Because there's no motive for something like that. The question you have to ask behind this is, why? And there's no good answer for why. I think that instead, this global intelligence will treat us as their pets. They look at us the way that we look at our dogs and cats. They're very fond of us. We need to be steered right. And, you know, you got to make sure they do anything like that. But they're very amusing, good company to have around. I think that might be what we get. We get something that actually responsible for our survival. One thing that is really concerning me is the state of American schools. Our public education system is rotting. It is falling apart. One of the most disturbing stories that I heard in the last couple of weeks was where in Texas, they are literally removing the school libraries. They're taking the books out. And they're turning what used to be the libraries into detention halls. And they interviewed a secretary of education in one of these places. And he pointed out, oh, yeah, we didn't take the books out. See, they're right here. Yeah, but there's no librarians. All you've done is that you've stuffed the books onto the shelf with no guidance or anything. I'm, I'm glad to see that this is, seems to be something that's really only going on in this country, that overseas in other places, they still take education, primary education, seriously. Unfortunately, it seems to be, for the most part in the U.S., they look at it only as being whether or not they can actually make a profit. And if they can't make a profit on it, then they just fold it up and get rid of it. This country's going to pay a price for that. We're already paying a price for that. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.